who needs a little bit of boost in their creativity and their work life, check out this Encore episode with Michaela. Oh, okay. I don't know that it totally matters how and where the creativity is coming, but that that part of me has oxygen to breathe and has life. You're listening to Good Is In The Details. I'm Gwendolyn Dolsky. And I'm Rudy Sallow. And this is the podcast where we learn what we didn't know we didn't know in the spirit of Socrates. Right, Rudy? Okay, um, great. The audience doesn't know how many takes it took to, for you to just read that first part. <laughs> and you, you nailed our brand whatever thing perfectly. <laughs> okay, this is definitely what you missed, dear audience, is going to be in a bloopers reel on Instagram. Which, by the way, we did an Instagram live. We're going to be doing more of those. So you can always get in touch. Good is in the details pod. Or my personal handle is at Prof Dalsky. And Rudy, you are? Rudy SS 77. Yeah, we're going to do more IG lives. And we would love to see our listeners come in and chat with us. Okay. So today's episode is with Dr. Michaela O'Donnell about her book, Make Work Matter. We're going to link all of our information in the show notes. The book is a fantastic book. And it is... Let's see, how do I want to say this? Okay, so it is an approach to work. There's a lot of stuff on the market about motivation and, I don't know, time management and things like this. What is really unique about Dr. O'Donnell's work is that it looks at the importance of work and how we approach it through a theological lens. And with that theological lens, I think that she introduces this value of ancient religious texts, Christianity in particular, and injects that into what it means to be creative, what it means to have empathy in your work life, and really how to fuel a passion to approach hmm, your business. Yeah? Yes. I mean, I think that's appropriate. In fact, I was describing this episode to a very good friend of mine, one of my closest friends. He was actually in my wedding party, uh, even though he never calls me. Uh, it's a terrible relationship, <laughs> but that's a whole other side issue. I'm going to give a Who, call out. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, he, he'll, no he, he'll, he's, he'll, he'll already be embarrassed. <laughs> who has struggled in finding both happiness and like value from his work. And I was like, look, man, for years, I've been telling you to find something that makes you happy outside of work and you get real joy from and that you can focus on and put some energy into. And in my opinion, that will reflect in your work. You can't just try to have all of your joy and meaning wrapped up just in your job. That's what I got out of this episode. That's what I got out of yeah. the book. And in fact, strangely enough, I really came to that my own conclusion about why I do all the creative things that I do is because while I love my job and I love the impact that it has, like it wasn't meeting all of the things that I need to make me happy. And once I started doing creative things, writing, podcasting, acting, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, I realized, wow, I'm really happy in my quote unquote day job. And success came there and success has come in other places. And it really comes down to exercising your creative muscle, whatever that may be. And most people think, oh, I'm not creative. I don't paint. I don't write. I don't do this. We get into that in this episode and you have to take an expansive view of what quote unquote is creative building a business from nothing is creative. Yeah. Making up playful things to do with your children out of nowhere is creative. So if you take the mindset to be a little bit more positive on yourself about what constitutes creativity, it opens up the doors to happiness. And Dr. Michaela really lays out why that is in this episode. This is why I'm very excited for this episode. I really think this is going to be a very impactful one. I think so too. And it's so timely because we are not just talking about a generational shift, but a shift as a result of the last two years of the pandemic that is really changing everyone's view about what it means to go to work and what is your time worth? What do we really care about? Do we really want to go back into the buildings? All of that stuff comes up in this episode. And I think I just want to say one more thing. We brought it up in the IG Live. In our last episode with Dr. Bess, we mentioned Buddhism twice. And in this episode, there's a lot of discussion of theology. And I just want to put it out there that one does not necessarily need to participate in the religious tradition of which we are speaking in order to get the wisdom from these ancient texts. So if somebody is of the Christian framework, then this Make Work Matter by Dr. O'Donnell is going to be, you know, you're going to be right at home with it. But if you are a listener who's coming from outside of that, the Christian framework, I don't want anybody to think that this isn't for them because you can still get a lot of wisdom from the ancient text, even if you don't participate in that 
that particular religion. And that's something that I really, really love. I think in her work, everyone should get it, make work matter. In this book, God, she just interlaces it so beautifully. I agree. Okay, let's talk about making work matter. Michaela, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Good to be with y'all. Okay, I'm really excited to talk about your book. Rudy and I have had guests on the show where we've talked about time management and things like that. And I know there is a lot of material out there on how to get things done, how to not procrastinate. One of the things that stands out about your book is that you're looking at work through a theological lens. How can that be helpful when we are caught up in the throes of work to examine it from a theological lens? Yeah, it's a good question. I actually get this question a lot. People are like, why faith and work? Like, why do those even go together? I'm a big fan of like the Atlantic, New York Times. And there's a writer that writes often for the Atlantic. His name's Derek Thompson. And he wrote an article a couple of years ago that has been it was sort of one of those pivot moments for me. He talks about this idea of workism and the idea that uh, Americans in particular really lift up and he uses the word worship work. He breaks it down a little bit further and now not just him, but others as well. We get a lot of our sense of identity from work for better or worse. And people are like, what do you do? And that's a driver. And so it turns out that like we have a lot of feelings about our work and what we do for work. And we're trying to make sense of our ourselves through this vehicle. And so in any space where we have a lot of feelings and we're trying to make sense of ourselves, again, we're not going to yet say if that's good, bad, or otherwise, those are big questions. And when we get into those big questions, that's where I'm like, okay, what, a, what does faith, what are more sacred conversations, what does theology have to speak into those? Because at the core of theology, it's a discipline and a set of beliefs that's about meaning and about identity. And so as we're working out those same things in our work, I like to put those in conversation with one another. So that that's why theology and work. Yeah, I loved, I mean, when you were talking about creativity, how looking at that from a theological point of view, could you expand on that in the book? Yeah, so this is sort of an even kind of dovetails on the why theology and work. So the in the Bible, the very first story we have about God, Genesis, even people who are like, yeah, I'm not really into God. I don't I don't read the Bible. I don't the Christian tradition sort of is off-putting, especially in this age of Christian nationalism, et cetera, et cetera. Many people know the story of Genesis, right? The story of how God created the world, this poem. And in that poem, about midway through, we get God creating the heavens and the earth and separating the sea from land and night from day and birds and animals and every living thing. Then we get this piece in the poem that says, and then God created humans in the image of God and gave humans this kind of commission, uh, this instruction, I might say this calling to fill the earth and with arts and artifacts and to be fruitful and multiply. In the most literal sense, that's probably a call to reproduce, to have kids, right? To be fruitful and multiply. But many theologians, many people who study the scriptures would say that's not just about having kids. That's really an invitation to creatively engage the world. I would be of the camp that would say, I think creativity is in our DNA. And I think that as people living in the modern world, the world works to sort of squash a lot of that creativity, usually by the time we're in high school and we go into the adult world and we don't necessarily think of ourselves as creative. We don't necessarily think that we have those tools. Two examples, both in the book, one, Molly, Gwen, you might know Molly, uh, Molly Galbraith. She's a, a friend of Angela's. We have some common connections, her stories yeah. in the book. She's just awesome. She's just <laughs> really cool. And she started this whole organization, this whole company, almost like an empire. And we were catching up over beers one time. And she said to me about the company that my husband and I run, wow, it's so cool that you're creative. I don't that creative, that creativity stuff's not really for me. And this is like a person who started this major thing, who created something from nothing. I'm like, wait a minute, how do you not see yourself as creative? And that ended up being kind of a big shift moment for her and for me. So a lot of us just don't see ourselves as having this capacity and we have to kind of recover that. And the second story, and I think maybe proof, right? I'm, I'm a mother. I've got two small kids. I've got a six-year-old and a three-year-old. And I see this creativity play out all the time in what they do and the choices they make. It's like, wow, that was a really creative solution. Wow, that was a, an imaginative idea. 
So I think that much of the task of work, and it, it really does play out distinctly for different people, is about recovering that creativity. And I want to say, yeah, that goes all the way back to our very first story about God and how God made human beings as demonstrated in that poem in Genesis. Just to kind of expand upon that and make that a little personal to my own kind of situation, I couldn't agree more that people are naturally creative. And when they try to suppress that creativity, A, terrible things happen like anger, like they're not going to be able to meet their full potential. In high school, I found my creative um, side kind of on my own with my best friend that I wound up playing um, guitar and a whole bunch of bands. And I really loved playing, found my path in life by focusing on music and moving forward. Was in bands all throughout high school, in college. And then when I went to law school, I said, okay, no more. No more creativity, no more music, nothing. I'm only going to focus on the law and being successful there. And I was, don't get me wrong, but something happened about 10 or 12 years into my legal career. I was absolutely miserable. I mean, I, I was very, I was an extremely unhappy lawyer. I liked what I was doing. I still like what I do. I think that my work matters, but the creative side of me that I was killing, but pushing down, sequestering, doing that was making me so unhappy. And then things really turned around when I started to write and started to be more creative. And I started to do more in the creative side of the world. And interestingly enough, I feel a lot better about my day job. I feel a lot better about life in general. I feel, and lo and behold, I've been more successful and I could tie it to one thing, happiness. Because I'm happier, I am more successful. I feel like that's my truth, but do you think that that's kind of a universal truth? Like if you're exercising that creative muscle, creativity makes you happy. And when you're happy, kind of success business-wise, career-wise goes kind of hand in hand. I feel like that's one of the premises ultimately of, of your book, but I'm just, can you expand upon my own personal philosophy that I speak a lot about on the show? Yeah, Rudy, I think, I mean, just the way that you articulate that progression, I think is really similar to what I hear from a lot of people. So it's kind of, this is who I am and, I, and I'm and i a multifaceted person. And then for whatever reason, I've had to shut down part of myself and I've channeled things in this way. And this, this happens in work in particular, right? Because we've got to work to make money to pay for really basic and good things like where we live. Health insurance. Health insurance, <laughs> right? Groceries. Botox. So, Botox, just the critical things in life, Gwen. <laughs> I threw that into, I, threw, I thought that was a part of health insurance. Health <laughs> it is, yeah, health. right. Yeah. If you're not yeah, getting same. your Botox and oh. health insurance, yeah, you're missing yeah. out. Yeah. So two things I've noticed happen, more than two, but I think two are relevant even in, in the story that you told, Rudy, is people either say, okay, I'm going to take all this stuff I love and try to make that what I do for my work. Sometimes that happens. What? Sometimes it works out. Other times it doesn't. It goes in different directions. There's all kinds of things that can lead to, or I'm going to set aside this self and get practical and do X, Y, and Z, which is a little bit more of what I'm hearing in, in what you said, Rudy. But as soon as we are divided as people, as soon as we are parsing ourselves out, as soon as as we're stepping away from what I'll call integration or wholeness, there's actually a biblical word for this, shalom, right? Um, this, this idea of wholeness. Then we're scattered people and that scatteredness shows up in different ways. And I do think that lack of contentment, I notice a lot of anxiety. Now I'm putting, not trying to put words in your mouth, Rudy, but like depression or lack of happiness. So then it's like, okay, the route back to that and the route back to even you is really critical. And that's why, that's why so much of the work that I'm interested in is helping people understand those deeper identity truths, because then it's, it's much less about, okay, did my creativity play out in the fact that I started a new project at work today or in the meal I cooked or in the way that I played with my kid? I don't know that it totally matters how and where the creativity is coming, but that that part of me has oxygen to breathe and has life starts to lead to much more of this, which leads to the contentment and happiness that is then funneled back into all that we put our heads, hands, and hearts to in relationships. So yeah, like I'll co-sign on that, Rudy. Would you say that one of the most toxic things that somebody can say about themselves is, oh, I'm not a creative person. When people say that over and over to themselves, mm -hmm. then they kind of put themselves in a box 
everyone's creative. I mean, to, to live, to navigate the world, especially as you lay out in your book, this new world that's upside down and there's no clear paths forward, you absolutely have to be creative in order to be successful. So like when you talk to people or coach with people or you talk to your students, you say, get that thought out of your head. Get, do never, ever, ever say I'm not a creative person. Yeah. It even comes back to maybe something a little bit deeper that I encounter in people, which is like, I'm not worth it. I don't have what it takes. Like there's these things that underlie a level deeper, which can show up as opting in and out of these different attributes or muscles or labels. Another one that I, I all the time am working with people on is like, oh, I'm not a leader, right? And I'm like, well, like who gets to decide who has power? And is leadership even about power in the first place? I mean, I work and I, I run a leadership center at the school that I work at. So we help leaders think about faith and work and these big questions. So I think one of the most toxic things that we can do is like opt in and out of those kind of labels, which have so much promise for our capacity to breathe life going forward. There's obviously a whole other set of labels that we don't want to be associated with, with toxicity, with somebody who uh, marginalizes other people, with someone who's a racist or a sexist. There's a lots of the labels go both ways. And I think so being able to honestly say that we're multifaceted people and that we have more potential to do harm and more potential to do good as individuals than maybe we get our, give ourselves credit for. It's an understanding our own agency and that there's power in that. Most of my work helps push people toward what I'll call more generally the positive natures of that, which creativity is included in. But yeah, I think when people decide they are or aren't something and there's a finality to that, I want to press pause on that finality. I love how you said the creativity can be just simply making a meal. The creativity doesn't necessarily have to be with the employment or where you're getting your paycheck. But if you are creative in that, that's great. But if you're creative outside of that, that also adds to your fuel. So when you do go to get that paycheck, I also really loved your section on failure versus success. I know Mm. I've told my students, people who are successful have just failed more than you. How are people defining success? And I guess I'm asking this because pre-pandemic versus now, Mm -hmm. I would imagine that that notion of what is success would be radically different, especially when I'm reading that people are not wanting to go back to work anymore. And I'm wondering if being locked down or losing family members or this fear of being sick, if that hasn't shifted people's concept of what it means to live life well. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Just yesterday, I was talking with a group of people and I was saying, you know, I think like the tectonic plates have moved and they're not going to resettle where they were. Like they're just not as a society, Mm -hmm. as a world in many different ways. And because one of the things that happened when COVID started is that people in many Many industries were sent home and told to work from home. Work is one of these big shifts because it's like that thing was disrupted, right? So we're not seeing it as much in terms of people saying, wow, my everybody's reevaluating, though many might be, their relationships to their parents. That might happen, but people are reevaluating their relationship to health and to where they live and certainly to work. And so this is front and center. And there's like this whole phenomenon right now, which y'all are probably familiar with, the great resignation, where anywhere between 40 and 60% of people are actively thinking about quitting their jobs. And the Bureau of Labor and Statistics that like the government puts out reports that starting in, I think it was August, July or August, but all the way through the fall, we actually saw those record numbers of people resigning and quitting. Now, this is interesting to me because you could have Googled in the last 10 years, like how many people hate their jobs? How many people dislike their work? And you would have gotten pretty high numbers. The distinction is that people are actually making changes right now, which has a lot to do with this larger tectonic shift. And these plates are just not going to resettle in the same place. And I think core to that, Gwen, is like, what does a good life look like? What are things worth doing? About like somebody would dream of, I want the big corner office. Now, hell no. No. I don't want no. an office. <laughs> like, yeah. Not right. at all. So the idea right. of what success looks like is totally different. I have totally one of those flipped. big corner offices and I never see it. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not, it's really not what it meant out to be. And it's interesting, like, yes, the pandemic has done a lot to do the tectonic shifts, but how about generational? I mean, is Gen X 
versus the boomers, right? The boomers, a big corner office, that was the thing for them because that's what they were told to, you know, that was the, like you said in your book, the escalator of success, that was the escalator of success. The big corner office was there for them. I feel like Gen X, like, yes, when we started working, especially some of the older Gen X um, folks, the corner office was still that goal. But then the internet came in and kind of changed everything. I feel like with Gen X and the younger generations, the, the big corner office, it didn't have the same shine or sheen or it just didn't didn't have what it was before. And then the pandemic just kind of blew that up yeah. by a million percent. I feel like there's some generational things yeah. even before the pandemic that affected that. I think that what shifted was this idea of self-employment, self-creativity, hey, I can do my own thing. And then something because of the internet went totally wrong because then the goal was fame. And so Mm. something seemed to have shifted. And I'm also thinking like, Michaela, as you said, a lot of people weren't happy with work at all, but I've seen some, you know, this resignation that what's happened is that people realize, but I don't have to do that. This kind of like existential crisis of realizing like, I don't have to do that. One of the things I've seen printed up in some news or some commentary is that people are lazy. And I don't think that this is a reflection of laziness. I think this is a reflection of what your project is about is people being disconnected from their work. That's what you're seeing. And that maybe it's always been that way, but now people, it's really hitting home because they realized that they could live without what it was that they were doing and try to find something else. Yeah, I I completely agree. I mean, I've actually been asked a few times lately to write on work ethic for younger generations. And I've said, no, like, I'm not going to do that. That's That's not the issue. The issue is not work ethic. The issue is huge generational realignment and reassessment about what it is that's central. So to Rudy's point, it's like, I don't want to just say the people who are asking me to write this are boomers, but I mean, I, I literally had a conversation with someone, you know, high profile person. And this person was talking to me about the people who worked for him and all these millennials and these millennials who couldn't show up. And I looked across the table and I said, listen, I'm a millennial and I've got a good job and I've got two kids. I started a business. I bought a house in LA with my husband. He works very hard. This is his list of clients right now. And I'm like, it's just not true. It's absolutely not true. And it's not true about the next generation. What is true is this renegotiating of norms. I don't know if it's an existential crisis. Now we're in your territory more than my territory, Gwen, but it's certainly a no, like we're not going to do that. The norms have been renegotiated and you do see this generationally. I think actually in the next five years, we're going to have to decide what to do with all the empty office buildings. I really do. I I can tell you right now, um, one of the big, so I work at a law firm, a large law firm Mm -hmm. in downtown Los Angeles. We're actually in California Plaza, which is the, the like the tallest buildings on Bunker Hill, and all law firms and accounting firms. I take that back. Counting firms for a while have gone to hoteling, meaning like, hey, you know, most of our people are with clients or working from home. So we're there, no one's going to plug in the laptop that we give you and you can work at that space for a couple of days and then see you later. Bye-bye. You're not going to have a permanent space here. Law firms are going to go in that direction. We're ethically bound by keeping things confidential, but a lot of downtown buildings, it's going to be very interesting to see the future of commercial real estate based upon this point. You can't divorce this. You can't divorce the work that matters discussion, the future of what does an office look like versus what does the future of cities look like? What does the future of commuting look like? What does the future of transportation look like? There's so many things happening and changing on a daily basis that you cover in your book, including changes in transportation. Like who knows if we're even going to all own cars in the future? Will we just have subscription services? Will the infrastructure be built out so like driverless cars can take us wherever we need to go? Will we be working from cars? Who knows? We and our children and the the generation underneath us need to be flexible enough and deal with changing circumstances enough in order to find success. And that was one of the you have a lot of great messages in your book, but that's the one where I'm like, yep, this is what I like to tell people as well. You're going to need to be comfortable with change because it's going to happen no matter what. Yeah. I mean, two things there. One, all of what you just described in terms of a work conversation essentially brings up what work will we even need to do as a society? Like what work will we be doing? And so it's less about how do I construct this amazing mental image of my own career where I'm going to get all this personal satisfaction and more of how do I be a person of meaning and life and connection that then can bring that to work, right? This is 
the story that you told Ruby, but I just think it's all up for grabs. And it's why I go to creativity is because creativity is a muscle that says, we imagine things are going to be different and we're going to bridge the gap between possibility and actuality. And it's a thing that says that anticipates and presumes change. Creativity presumes change. And it's a positive side of change. There's a, there's a whole other side of change that I think we have to be honest about too. Grief and loss and hardship and heartache and heartbreak. But the creativity, again, there's some agency. There's some, we're, I'm now picturing a surfer. I'm like, okay, we're, we're now riding the wave, right? We're not sort of lost in, in the swallows of the sea just to loop it back to creativity. As you're saying that, it's just given me like a lot of excellent things that I'll hand down to my own children. Um, creativity helps you with rigidity. So if you're a rigid person and you're so used to things being a certain way, and if those things kind of go out of what your expectations are, perhaps being a creative person and exercising that muscle, it'll help you deal with changing rigidity. It'll help you to deal with change and it'll actually set you up for success in life. There's another part in here that I thought was really interesting. I'll just, although a lot of people hate grading <laughs> and I made a decision a while ago that I would no longer grade if I got into that mindset of, I hate doing this, that I had to change my mindset to a sense of gratitude, <clears throat> meaning that I was thankful that I had students who are handing me their work mm -hmm. and that I wanted to grade with love. I was grateful to be part of their intellectual journey. And if I was not in that mind space, then I was not going to grade anymore. So sometimes grading took a while. <laughs> God, God bless you, man. If you were able to That's do that, how, can, you can no, create things I, I, with your mind. I've, I've, no, I've told myself, and I also stay away from conversations from other academics or teachers who complain about grading because I just decided I have to approach this differently and I have to respect that I am part of this and that that's gratitude. So I've been afraid to say that out loud for a long time, but your book, Michaela, made me feel more comfortable. There's something that you said here that I really want to get into. You wrote, I am convinced that our very best and most meaningful work can be traced back to empathy. Empathy. Yeah. So that's what was reminding me of the way that I started to enjoy my work differently when I shifted my mindset from looking at grading as something I hated and I needed to do as opposed to gratitude for being part of my students' lives and grading with love. So I'm wondering with different types of work, what do you mean by approaching work with empathy and that everything can be traced back to empathy? I, I love that story. I'll, t I'll tell you how I came to that conclusion by answering a question that you asked earlier that I didn't answer. And that was about success and failure. So in the research project that launched this work and then led to, oh goodness, hundreds of informal conversations, I was after the question of like, okay, how do people who make their way in a changing world of work like actually do it? Everybody else is like floundering and these people are like thriving. And so I had my criteria and I had my people and they happen to be people who are entrepreneurs. I'm a practical theologian. So then I layered on that people who were formed by the Christian story. And I asked them, how have you learned to define success? How have you learned to define failure? What practices have moved you towards success and what practices have helped you deal with failure? There was a wide range of answers to definitions of success and failure. Though, Gwen, your earlier point about comfort with failure was really key. These people were much more comfortable with failure than they were with success. And that most of them didn't know if they had even achieved success yet. And it wasn't in some sort of self-deprecating way. It was just in a, we're just kind of working it out. And these are people who had objectively done very interesting things. And we, the three of us would say, yeah, you're successful, but they had more questions. Now, central to what they did and how they actually moved through the world was that they practiced empathy. It wasn't like people told me, yeah, we did this big formal listening project and we went and learned about everyone's needs and feelings. They practiced what I've come to call empathy along the way. These are people who could let empathy interrupt them and then start a process of imagination, risk-taking, right? So even, even what you're saying there, like, okay, I these are people who are, you know, given their time and space and writing their papers and I'm with them. Like when we're kind of along the way together for mm -hmm. this duration of time in this semester, or otherwise, what if this is now an imagination question? What if I like leaned into their work with gratitude and I like didn't grade it if I didn't feel like it? And then the risk, the risk is maybe my grades aren't going to get done in the same time fashion, or maybe I'm going to give more A's than I usually do because I don't, I'm not going to use the same rubric. I don't know what it is. Like there's, there's just 
different things that go and that then finally lead you to reflecting on how all that went. So that process of empathy, particularly practicing empathy along the way, once I saw it, kind of extracted it from the research and then started to notice it in, pe in other people's work, it was just such a game changer. Then when I started to practice it for myself, it just got me out of my own tunnel and like a feeling and way more like, okay, we're all here. We're all moving one step at a time. Let me look to the left and the right and see who is it that is in my sphere today, this week, et cetera. So I have, I've become biased that most of the meaningful work that we do is actually pretty ordinary. It's pretty daily and can be traced back to empathy. And now a quick break to tell you about our sponsor for this episode. Gen X This Is Why podcast examines media from the Gen X childhood of two sisters, Jenny and Amy. And they're very witty. They have great banter. You got to check it out. And when you do check it out, let them know that Good Is In The Details sent you. They talk about film and pop culture and how it affected them. Gen X This Is Why covers movies from the 70s and 80s and Little House on the Prairie. I listened to a couple of those episodes. Very good. Through these shows and movies, Jenny and Amy are discovering the origin of some of Gen X's weirdest fears, phobias, and social norms. They've covered movies like Dirty Dancing, Pretty in Pink, Top Gun, and more. I mean, these are top-notch for Gen Xers. Find Gen X This Is Why on most podcast apps and by visiting GenXThisIsWhy.com. Back to the show. You know, it reminds me of something that always stuck with me, and it's from my freshman year in, in university, so, you know, not that long ago. And it was Three years my ago. Philosophy class, <laughs> my philosophy class, and I remember when the professor was talking about Immanuel Kant and his ethics. There is a part of his ethics where he says that the human being is always an end in herself, never a means only. And that language feels so distant and theoretical, and then the way that she explained it was, when you buy something look at the cashier in the eye. Hmm. The cashier is not part of the cash register. It's always stuck in me of how it hmm. is that we interact with people that, you know, even when you go to the grocery store, if you're at the DMV or wherever at a restaurant, that you are now in part of somebody's work day yeah. and you yeah. will have a better interaction. Instead of being annoyed that you've been in line for so long, the moment that you step up and see whoever it is that is waiting on you or serving you or customer service, to look at them and think, you know, I wonder what they thought of the ending of Game of Thrones. Or I bet they can't wait to have a glass of wine at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. I wonder if they just started their shift. Do they have a brother or a sister? When you do that, when you recognize that this is a person not just built there to serve you, then you have that empathy. And it's also a really beautiful thing to recognize. When you go into a shop, you are now part of somebody's workspace. You have the power to make somebody's day better. And they also, somebody who's serving you coffee or whatever, maybe somebody's having the shittiest day and they just ask, how are you? Or let me sneak you some extra something. They have the power to make somebody's day better. And I think that we need to recognize that. Big, small jobs. And also, does empathy work on lawyers, Rudy? <laughs> uh, I, I mean... Yes. No, no, it, it, it really, you bring up a good point. In fact, we try to, lawyers definitely need, are, are working very hard to be more empathetic. I'm naturally an empath. Like I probably feel things like too much, you know, that serves, serves very well for me. Yes, that is something that for the industry is an issue. I will say that kind of is an issue as well for medical doctors because they have to compartmentalize their feelings yeah. a lot, uh, especially since they're constantly not constantly, but frequently giving very bad news. It is harder for certain industries to be showing of emotions, if you will. I probably need to contain mine more than usual. But I do think it is hard for certain industries to be as emotional versus other industries. I think that because the inherent nature of law in terms of right and wrong and justice, that it is supposed to withdraw emotion in order to be effective. And mm -hmm. I think that the whole history of being a professional has has been based on that, that the idea of a professional manner does not include any sort of emotion or um, empathy. And I wonder if that's why it's just been extracted or it's considered unprofessional or I, I don't know. But now we're starting to see that, I mean, the people who are practicing that, it's just no wonder they had to go to happy hour. 
right? Like after work and go and drink. That's why, because you cannot actually contain that emotional part of you. And so there had to have been drinks after work, not kind of a culture, which brings me to the other thing that I just... Mm. I just, the way, Michaela, that you responded to the question of how do you do it all? And that really, really hit me. So I think that's where I want to kind of dive into this notion of women and work and a patriarchal society. Because when you were writing your response to somebody saying, how do you do it all? I felt that because I know 95% of the time I look at degree worse than a hot mess. The other 4% of the time I will spend 15 minutes to only look a hot mess. And then the other 1% of the time I'm fabulous. But when people ever make that comment of how do you do it all, it is that 1% of the time. And they have no idea that maybe I just had a conflict and stopped crying two seconds before I got on Zoom to look normal for everybody, you know, or how much effort and work it takes to just stand still or that I'll forget to eat because that comes last as opposed to everything else. And I think that part of that has to do with women are tasked with this idea of being able to do it all. And men are not getting the same kind of question, how do you do it all? Because they're not ever expected to do it all. So how do women approach work and find balance? That was a long-winded way of saying that. I just, I just appreciated that you, I appreciated you wrote that because it's, it's hard when somebody says, how do you do it all? And I'm sitting there thinking, you have no idea. You have like everything, like there might be dishes in the sink. The cat litter needs to be changed in order for me to appear as though I am fabulous in that moment. Yeah. And I, my pause is that I actually think the two conversations are related. The one that we're having about empathy and its place in the workplace, if you will. And then how does this play out for specific people group? Let's talk about women for a second. Yeah. I, I, the reason why I'm sort of like hemming and hawing here is I'm about to say something that's kind of big and I'm like, Ooh, do I, do I all the way believe this? Let's test it out. Let's, let's see if I all the way believe this. I think that in the work world in the economic system that we exist in, people have become more agents of production and it's like, how much more can you do and how can you, you know, do that with efficiency and effectiveness? Cause you're, you've got billable hours or you've got a lot of patients to see, or you've got these multi roles and tasks that you're taking on and you're a professor and a mom and a person who, you know, makes dinner and just whatever it is. And so again, it goes back to our earlier conversation. There's this weird push to like get yourself and your humanity out of that and to then just like get the most done possible. So then when we get this question of like, how do you do it all? It's like, well, first of all, why am I, let me talk about very personally here. Like, why am I projecting an image that I am doing it all? Because to your point, Gwen, it's like, I'm never, it's literally as one person, we're never doing it all and all that's being expected of us and the thing that's made and this is a conversation I'm having with my team really regularly right now it's like we're back in kind of pandemic heightened pandemic vibes again and some of us are like oh like here we are and the first thing that we did is I'm like let's let's go through our punch list and start taking things off right let's not do what we don't have to do right now because the assumption is we can't do it all and now we've just got a whole mental and emotional load that's been put on us that if we don't give a little bit of our even workspace to work that out we're actually going to be counterproductive toward our collective work goals. So I don't do it all. And I don't think I have really very much of this figured out, except for to be very honest about it and to wonder out loud with others, like we're doing right now, where do those pressures come from? And why are those particularly aimed at women? Like my, nobody ever asked my husband, like, where are your kids at right now? Nobody has ever once asked him that in a work meeting. And I get asked that like fairly frequently, where are your kids at? And I'm like, okay, so person who's sitting across now a screen for me, you're assuming that I need to be attending to multiple things at a, at a time. And I've then got to receive that expectation and either push it off, make peace with it, answer to it. Um, and my choices are different in different moments, but it's just layers and layers of expectation that come back to productivity, gender norms, I think again, heightened in this kind of turbulence. So I think I just added more fuel to the fire, Gwen. I certainly didn't button anything up there. But <laughs> right now, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm thinking about this stuff even in renewed and renewed levels of scrutiny in 2022. Do you ever find in a Christian framework that it's a difficult question? How is your approach to Christianity then? Wouldn't your approach to Christianity be a challenge 
to a sense of Christianity where there was a very strict role for a woman. So do you ever have any problems reconciling Christianity? No, actually, you obviously don't have any problems reconciling it. How do you reconcile Christianity with this notion of the woman being creative and being out in the world and projecting herself out in the world? I love that you asked that question. So I've never fit very well with people who don't think um, much of women. Let me put it like that. Like it's just, it's never been a good fit for me. Theologically, let's go, let's just use the same story that we've already used, Genesis 1. So God says, you know, in this poem, let us make them in our image. We're going to set aside some other conversations that this might lead to, but let us make man and woman and, and then gives them this collective task. That's a partnership task. And if we're, if we're using even just the be fruitful and multiply, there's this like very first thing that God wants humans to do that they have to do together. So the relegation of women under men, and there's, you know, we're not going to go to all the scriptural places in this conversation, but that's just like, that's a, it's a hard pass for me. What I do come into a lot is people who are recovering from that and people who have been hurt by that. And sometimes people who are still there, I have made my peace that it is, it's not my work to do to convince men or women that women have roles in leadership and in work and in society. It's just not my work. I'm not going to spend my energy doing that, but I do spend a decent amount of energy with people who are recovering from that sort of framework and mentality. And it's like, okay, let's parse out some of this. Let's look at some of the stories of women in the Bible. And then when you think about, it comes back to just my core sense of what Christianity is. And it's that God in the form of Jesus came for like all people. And it's a very wide, big table. And the stories of who Jesus hangs out with are far and wide and people who in his time period, others wouldn't have been hanging out with. And in every turn, we just see Jesus go wide. So because that's always been the core sense of how I've understood Christianity, I've never had a problem making peace with that. That probably also has to do with my family history. Like my mom owns her own business. I have got like lots of aunts. My dad is like very uplifting in that way. So there's, I I don't want to just say it's only faith. There's certainly some familial influence. So it's not hard for me to make peace with that. And I think that the story of God makes a lot of room for that. And I recognize there are many forms of Christianity in the world today. There are many forms that are not as permissive and open toward women. And it's still very painful and ripe for lots of women and lots of people. You know, now I'm having faces flash through my head. So I don't want to minimize that journey and that work that needs to be done. But theologically, like I don't have a hard time making peace with it. There's another thing that you said in your book that I really liked. And I think this all ties back to failure and success as well. Be willing to face plant. I face planted so much in my life. Uh, yeah. Will, will, will it's, it's just it's just a natural thing for me. And then, but this idea of being be willing to face plant, I think that yeah. there's so many different ways of looking at it. It's that this idea of of risk, of having faith in yourself, of having faith in the world around you, and to not be so afraid of something not working out. That you know you don't have anything to lose by being creative and putting something out there. What is been your experience with, let's say, face planting and where you can look back and say, okay, that was, it was actually a good experience. Yeah. um, I mean, a good experience in retrospect, right? So like, it's still like you face plant is still, you're still like literally hitting your face on on the pavement and you're like scraped Mm -hmm. up and bruised. But it's those times that I'm thinking particularly about now how I am as a leader. And I kind of want to talk about this, even just based on our conversation about women and the role of women in work in light of Christian theology. It's been some of the most formative lessons and things that I take with me as central to my style of leadership have been birthed out of things that didn't go very well. And times where I I tried to be a certain way and I'm like, oh, that just didn't work out tempting, I don't know about y'all, but tempting in those moments. And I'm thinking about a time when Dan and I, my husband were on a big project and uh, we ended up getting fired off the project. And it was just awful. It's an awful feeling because we cared about the person that had hired us. It was a friend and it was awful because we had estimated it to be 40% of our revenue for the year. And uh, yeah, it just totally sucked. At first, my instincts there were to figure out 
all the reasons why it wasn't my fault. It was like the expectations weren't clear. The scope wasn't well-defined. We're a scapegoat for an organizational issue, all these things. And then it's like, but what was like, what was my part in that? And I had all these parts like, oh, I wasn't as clear. I needed to handhold a little more um, because that was my job, client management. And I took some things for granted. We fell really in love with this idea and maybe didn't extend enough empathy or listening in terms of where the organization was tracking with it. Okay. So, so on and so forth. And it would be easy for me to say, yeah, I don't really want to do those kind of projects again, or I don't want to work with a friend again, or I don't even want to tell the story because it's embarrassing. And yet they've been some of the stickiest parts. And literally just yesterday, my team made a mistake and we had to like email these people and somebody put on the bottom of the email, like from your friends at at, at the Dupree Center. And I was like, no, 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 like we can't do that. I need you to put my name on the bottom of that. And this person's like, you didn't make the mistake. I'm like, doesn't matter. This needs to be high touch, high touch right now. Would I care so much about high touch if I hadn't had the experience where the low touch costs so much? Probably not. And so all of that gives... I mean, there's just some resilience in there, right? But there's also the courage that when things go wrong again, because they inevitably will, there's value and meaning to be drawn from it that then will strengthen in life going forward. I could instead say, I don't want to take those big risks and I don't really want to do those things anymore. Uh, But that's just then you're just, it's a closed way of living. It's not an open way of living. Is it the fact that you, you survive? You could have crumbled, you could have folded up business, but you didn't. You survived that. And it's like, okay, a mistake happened. A big hit to the revenue happened. I'm still here. It's still another day and I'm still moving forward. Is that the lesson? It's like, no, no, I survived that. So I can survive a lot of things. Yeah. I mean, I think survival, but also just like that might have actually made me a better leader and a better person and a better creative. And so there's value even in the setback. In that moment, it might have been more about surviving, but ultimately the story probably led to my thriving as like, right? So now I, I impart some new practices based on that failure that then enhance how I'm able to relate to people in my work now. And empathy. I think people who are willing to face plant and that makes them more open to empathy. Yeah. Michaela, one of the things that I loved about your book, and I thought that it was, I mean, I think you're already ahead of the curve because this is one of the first times I've seen this topic really addressed at the level that you addressed it. The problems of hustle culture and using hustle culture as like a crutch, if you will, when you're feeling like, oh, so-and-so is is further along ahead of me. What am I doing? I better hustle it's all on me. This is my fault. I need to hustle more. They must be hustling more. And the problems of hustle culture, I love that you address that in the book. And I love the fact that you admit that it affects you too. And you have to stop yourself from saying, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not going to listen to that right now. I'm not going to listen to what those gurus say I should be doing more of. I know what's good for me and and I will do what's good for me. Is that the lesson that you try to tell your students or, or what you want people to get from the dangers of hustle culture or is there more to it than that? Yeah. Thank you. I mean, this is just so prevalent again. Like I think we've all been shaped into like, why is empathy not in the workplace? Like why is even our feminine styles of leadership not as valued because the name is like the more you produce, the better you are and the more valuable you are to society and to this company and to the bottom line. And therefore that's your value, right? It's like, you know, we're not human doings. We're human beings. Fact end right there. I do think that work and effort and labor are woven into the fabric of how we are as people. And so I don't think that work is bad. Sure, humans can be exploitive. There, there's It can go in that direction. But in this very coarse sense, I don't think work is a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. But it has been a vehicle just for this driving thing. And to your point about the internet earlier, Gwen, I think it got amplified when it's like, we look and see what everybody else is doing. And we don't really know what everybody else is doing. We just see what we see. We see these snippets. We see what they put out there, by the way. Like some people put a lot of effort in protecting what they put out there and only want certain images to go out there. Yes. Yeah. And I think that this is one of the most potentially destructive things for us is, is hustle culture. So agree. I re- God, I'm sorry. I know you were going to, I just want to say I am obsessed with this topic. So I'm so glad to hear you say that. Yeah. And my pause was just about like, and I'm not saying that as somebody who's like 
awesome because it's just, it's everywhere. It's so pervasive and there's so much opportunity and so many things to do. And I don't know if y'all are Enneagram people, but I'm an Enneagram person. I love it. It's like a tool kind of personality type. I'm like the enthusiast and the more, and the, I just want to like go and, and be with other people. So this maturity, I'll say in many things is like, well, what does it look like to subvert that? What does it look like to resist that? This is where I think the Christian story is interesting too, because the rhythm of work in the Bible is work and rest, <laughs> work and rest. It's like Christianity 101, like Judaism 101. And yet like, we don't actually do that as people. We work, 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 a little bit of rest, work, work, work. It's just, it's, it's not rhythmic in the way I think that we're designed as human beings to experience. I don't have this all figured out, but I think that being naming the issue as it is so that we can like stand and say, okay, that's the issue. Like, what are we going to, how are we going to be in light of it is a first big step. That's great. No, you're right. I mean, I don't know how to address it either. I really don't know. You know, I think hustle culture came as a result of what you talk about in the book. Like there are no clear paths. There are a million options. And what you were saying, Gwen, about celebrity is one of those things where, you know, a a quote unquote, somebody who thinks they're a nobody becomes a somebody, i.e. somebody who gets a lot of followers, somebody who gets a lot of sponsorship, somebody who makes a lot of money, quote unquote, not necessarily overnight, but kind of seemingly out of nowhere because they hustled and they just put a lot of posts, et cetera, et cetera. And they, put, they, they did put themselves out there and they were creative, you know, hats off to them. It's just, I do think, of course, hustle culture came out of the internet. And of course, it's always going to be there. And of course, it's not going to go away. It's just how do we educate students? Because I, I teach as well. And I have also have associates that, that I work with. And I have people that, you know, ask, how do I become more successful? And one of the things I don't want to overly promote is hustle culture. I've been seeing some things in hustle culture that they're, you know, toning things down a little bit. Like, I think like some, some gurus got the message of, okay, we do need to focus on happiness and work-life balance. So I do see a dialing back and, and maybe that's because people like you are, are calling it out in books and in people like me that nobody listens to, but will continue to call these things out and say, no, take it easy. All in due time, the number one thing that you can apply in your life is patience. Like it'll happen when it happens. No matter what effort you put forth, um, yes, effort is important, but so is keeping yourself healthy and happy. Without health and happiness, if you're successful, you're just going to die pretty quickly anyway. So what's the point? Yeah, you, um, you burn out every December. I know that that's cold and flu season, but it is almost always on time with mm-hmm. right after I submit my grades. It's like, achoo. I remember one time I just hit upload and then right then I sneezed and I was like, oh no. And I always get a little bit sick. And I honestly think it's burnout. I think it's that as soon as that work is done, my body is saying, okay, it's time for you to just stop. It's forcing me to do it. And you know, I told you, Rudy, I got the booster shot a few days ago. And then the next day I was knocked out. I was asleep the entire day. And I just figured, you know what? There is nothing I can do. And it was actually kind of nice because it's it's releasing me. It was something that was forcing me to release myself from hustle culture. But it's that moment where I realized like, you know what? This is all my body can do today is be in bed and there is nothing I can do. And I'm just going to go ahead and enjoy the day off, you know, asleep in bed. I don't have any choice. And so I think sometimes something will force us. I think that's the thing. Your body will shut down. It won't let you do the Vegas type work hustle 24 seven. Yeah. The last thing I want to add there is I actually think this has a lot to do with our hyper individualized culture because in the new world of work, individuals have to figure out way more than, than they used to. Mm-hmm. They sort of like get into a system or a corporation or something. And so I think that the path forward out of hustle culture is going to be some renegotiation of what is it like as individuals who are charting our own individual ways and in these different kind of work atmospheres to rejoin with each other. I don't have a clear sense of what that will look like. And I think it could take a lot of shapes. And I don't just mean that we're all going to be working for big companies again, but I think when we have to do everything ourselves, that's actually just too much for people to do, individuals to do. I think collectively that's going to play itself out probably in interesting ways in the next decade or so. I agree. Yeah, we still need community, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Michaela, thank you so much. Thank you. And thanks to you both for this conversation. And the way that you have these conversations is really inviting and engaging, certainly for me as a guest, but I I know for listeners too. So I appreciate the good work y'all are doing. Thank you. Thank you. 
Good is in the Details is produced by Dr. Gwendolyn Dalski and Rudy Salo. If you'd like to get in touch, we're on Instagram and Facebook, Good is in the Details pod. And if you'd like to support the show and get extra content, you can check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash good is in the details. Until next time, bye.